Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's been 10 years since a major international climate deal was agreed in Kyoto. Since then, global greenhouse gas emissions have skyrocketed by 30%. In Australia, the Howard government has made no serious attempt to slow down the nation's use of fossil fuels. It passes me as crazy that some sections of the Australian community want to shut down as soon as possible Mm. those parts of our uh, industries that, that, I mean, it's just foolish. But now, Australia is about to elect a new government that promises to change things and to be a global leader in tackling the climate crisis. Climate change is the great moral challenge of our generation. What could happen if Australia decides to be a good global citizen on climate and really tries to make a difference? I'm Graham Redfern, environment reporter for Guardian Australia, and this is Australia versus the climate. The shocking story of how Australia's behaviour across decades has made it a climate change outcast. Part two how Australia could have been a climate contender. (laughs) Okay, guys. It's 2007, an election year. A short time ago, uh, Mr. Howard called me to offer his congratulations. Labor's Kevin Rudd beats John Howard and becomes Australia's 26th Prime Minister. I thanked him for that and the dignity with which he extended those congratulations. I've just been through a very bloody federal election in Australia against Howard. We should celebrate and honour the way in which we conduct this great Australian democracy of ours. Nine days after being elected, Rudd heads to Bali for the 13th Conference of the Parties, that year's major global climate summit. It gives me great pleasure to declare open the 13th session. I was determined to make it plain to everybody that we were serious. Australia now stands ready to assume its responsibility in responding to this challenge, both at home and in the complex negotiations which lie ahead across the community of nations. I'd insisted that the first executive act of the new government was the ratification of the Kyoto Protocol. This was a huge step for Australia. I really at that stage had no idea of the extent to which Australia by the end of 2007 had become so reviled in the international community because of our refusal to budge on climate change action. We'd agreed on a script, so it was a quite short statement, as I recall. 
This is Howard Bamsey. You'll remember him as a member of the Australian negotiating team at Kyoto. Well, I remember having handwritten the statement. In Bali, he would announce the ratification. Something like 1,500 people in the room, all watching, and there were cameras that were everybody present. As he finished his speech, the crowd applauds. It was an overwhelming moment, I think. For all of us in the delegation, we all looked at one another, I think sharing the surprise, but also sharing the, uh, the sense that we were suddenly the most popular delegation in the room instead of one of the less popular delegations. Secretary-General, thank you very much for this meeting. Later, when Rudd arrives, he presents a formal document of ratification to UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon. So it's with great honour that I present this instrument of ratification to you. Thank you very much, Mr Prime Minister. I mean, I thought it would be welcomed by the international community what we were doing, but I was stunned when the auditorium erupted it was as if a major breakthrough had been achieved. Like, I've been to a bunch of UN conferences over the years, and UN delegates rarely leap to their feet about anything. Australia's shift sent ripples throughout the conference. It's one of the traditions that at the COPs is you always have an NGO party. I remember turning up and was greeted by Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. Erwin Jackson is a long-time Australian climate campaigner. There was just a real recognition that we were back, the jubilation in the room, and just the sense of, you know, we're in this, we can, we can make a good contribution. The world saw this was a big moment. I remember there being a feeling that a dark actor was becoming a bright, shiny, <laughs> shinier light. Jennifer Morgan, the head of Greenpeace International, was in Bali. And there was a bit of a sense of hope that some rationality had entered into the room, that the understanding of how vulnerable Australia is to climate change and uh, how much it actually needs the rest of the world to act in order to protect itself, that that seemed to come back in, that science was there. Lenore, how was it to watch this apparent previous dark actor become a shiny light? Well, I wasn't in Bali, but it certainly, it seemed very symbolic at the time. This is Lenore Taylor, editor of Guardian Australia. The Rudd government threw itself into figuring out how to put its promises into action. And Rudd very deliberately used the ratification as his first act. It was both important in its own right and it was very symbolic of the change that was happening in Australia at that time. So Australia, an economy with lots of high-emitting industries and a major fossil fuel exporter, is now firmly back on board. Uh, as those of you who follow this issue know, uh, December 7th, uh, we'll be meeting in Copenhagen to uh, advance uh, the Kyoto agenda to the next stage. The Copenhagen COP in 2009 was the next big climate meeting. And among those attending will be Prime Ministers from Bangladesh to Ethiopia and luminaries from Barack Obama to Prince Charles. Uh, it's a very simple question. What has to happen to ensure that the conference is a success? I think three points are important. Firstly, we have to agree on targets. Secondly, we have to agree on funds. This COP was supposed to be a turning point. Until now, it was only the developed countries that had been expected to cut emissions. 
At Copenhagen, it's every country. The rich countries that cause the problem, the poor nations that will be hit the hardest, and big countries like China and India, whose economies were growing really fast on the back of burning fossil fuels. Getting them all to reach a deal that everyone thinks is fair was never going to be easy. Copenhagen was one hard slog from the get-go. The work started well before the conference opens. The negotiations for these deals can take years. In the months leading into Copenhagen, Kevin Rudd was crisscrossing the globe, talking to leaders trying to get them ready. The UN Secretary-General, to be blunt, did not have an effective political strategy for getting this across the line. The Danish government, which was hosting COP16 in Copenhagen, was grappling for a political strategy. Rudd remembers talking with the Prime Minister of Denmark, Lars Rasmussen, and UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon. From the get-go, I began talking with them about how do we start forming a coalition of the climate change willing. And that's what gave rise to their request of me to become, as it were, in charge of trying to gather global support outside the formal UN processes. And meanwhile, Kevin Rudd was also putting a lot of time and effort into... I mean, he was never a man who was, you know, afraid of spreading himself too thinly, and he was putting a lot of time and effort into trying to get some sort of global result in Copenhagen. This is Adam Morton, Climate and Environment Editor at Guardian Australia. I think it's worth remembering here that for all the heralding of Rudd in Bali and the sense that he turned things around in Australia on climate, and that was definitely the perception internationally, that the country's emissions targets were still not reflective of what climate scientists were saying was necessary. I mean, Australia's targets never have been. But the focus at this point was really on trying to land a deal from which countries could launch forward and build trust on climate. And the stakes were really huge before Copenhagen and Rudd threw himself into it. Uh, He was investing everything he had in it, both because I think he genuinely saw it as an important issue, but also because he knew he personally had a lot riding on it. He had really uh, staked his government's colours to the mast and things were looking shaky internationally and he had a lot riding on its success. And, you know, he it was um, something that leaders, including Rudd, tacked on to, tried to uh, use every international meeting in that year to try to push forward. They were trying every way they could to try to galvanise and grab the attention of world leaders to this end when you know, there was a lot else going on. Erwin Jackson remembers Rudd's message to countries worried about their economies. Kevin Rudd would go would, would go to G20 meetings and give presentations on, you know, how action on climate change is not going to smash your economy and how it could actually be a benefit to your economy. And those kinds of messages were particularly targeted um, at emerging economies in China and India and other places. The month before the conference, there's a summit of Asia-Pacific leaders in Singapore. Rudd wants Rasmussen to meet them. We had lobbied a number of heads of government saying that we'd try to do something over breakfast if that was convenient while we're all in Singapore. And remember, this is uh, 20 or so APEC countries, including China, including the, the United States, including Japan. I mean, these are big emitters. On the basis of pure bluff, I then rang the Prime Minister of Denmark and asked if he could fly to Singapore and join us for breakfast. I said, it could be 20 of us or it could be two of us. I'm not sure. 
<laughs> and so, so Prime Minister Rasmussen staggers off a plane literally about 24 hours later uh, in Singapore, is invited to the place where I've organised uh, breakfast, and lo and behold, uh, one by one, each of those heads of government rolled in. We had the whole lot. We had Obama. Uh, we had uh, Hu Jintao. Uh, We had Medvedev, who was then in charge of the Russian Federation, and all those other heads of government. It would be critical for Copenhagen's success for them to attend and not just simply to send their climate ministers or foreign ministers. But some inside the United Nations were worried. You know, it was the lead up to Copenhagen. We were drafting constantly throughout that year, trying to find solutions for the agreement in Copenhagen, which was a mirage. This is Andrew Hyam. Hyam had a central role coordinating climate agreements for the UN. There was nothing close to an agreement in that year leading up to the moment. It was clear going into Copenhagen um, that it was going to be very difficult at the least and a real problem. Everybody claimed that they really understood how serious the problem was and they really wanted to engage. Connie Hedegaard is the former Minister for Climate and Environment in Denmark and she was president of the Copenhagen Conference. Despite all the, the nice intentions, all the nice words spoken to the respective publics, then the reality was that too many of the big countries, for all practical purposes, came empty-handed or nearly empty-handed to, to Copenhagen. In Australia, the political fight over climate policy was becoming more and more toxic. Rudd was trying to bring in an emissions trading scheme, an already fraught issue. The leader of the opposition. Uh, Thanks, Mr Speaker. Uh, Then, the week before Copenhagen... I have the honour to inform you and the House uh, uh, that uh, uh, a little while ago uh, I was elected uh, leader of the federal parliamentary Liberal Party. Tony Abbott became leader of the opposition. Now, uh, you know, I I think that uh, the climate change science... Uh, is far from settled. A man well known for his climate scepticism and his objection to any action on climate change. Um, The fact that we've had, uh, if anything, cooling global temperatures over the last decade, notwithstanding continued dramatic increases in carbon dioxide emissions, uh, suggests that... Clearly, yes, it was much harder for Rudd and, and everyone could see that the stakes had risen for him. But just how hard it would get was not clear. Lenore, as all this was playing out back home, you land in Copenhagen. Um, What's it like on the ground? It was held in a conference hall that had carrying capacity for 15,000 people and they accredited 45,000 people. So you couldn't walk around. It was sort of like a mosh pit sometimes in the sort of public areas. There was, you know, business types and lobbyists and green groups and young climate activists with wind turbines on their heads doing performative dance and, I mean, it was really quite chaotic. There were people at the beginning, they didn't have enough people to accredit people getting in and people would stand out in the snow in sub-zero temperatures for hours and hours and hours to try to get accreditation. So, you know, organisationally it was poor. This chaos spilled over into the negotiations. Andrew Hyam was there for much of it. It was a very, very fractious um, negotiation um, because the process was so bad. It felt like things were being done behind closed doors. 
There were texts that were floating around um, which uh, had been developed by the presidency of the COP without consulting. And actually the meetings themselves were conducted in a foolish way. It was almost buffoon-like, not really following protocols and procedures. So that left people feeling rather unconfident about the process. We know that the Danes have a strong history of travelling the world. In fact, there are even people in Tuvalu who have Danish names. Ian Fry represented the Pacific nation of Tuvalu at Climate Talks. He was another Australian trying to salvage the conference. Unfortunately, you never made it to Tuvalu, though I think you tried. And I think if you've made it to Tuvalu, you would have realised why we are so concerned about this issue. For Tuvalu, climate change could mean the end of their country. The entire population of Tuvalu lives below two metres above sea level. The highest point above sea level in in the entire nation of Tuvalu is only four metres. It was extremely stressful for me. I think it was one of the most, you know, stressful negotiations I've ever been in. We had an expectation that we would be negotiating an outcome and, and, and we weren't even allowed to have a reasonable discussion of the possible legal outcome. That was, to me, a huge injustice and and to the rest of the Tuvalu delegation. In the middle of the conference, Fry speaks out. I'm just merely a humble and insignificant employee of the Environment Department of the Government of Tuvalu. I basically hadn't slept all night and I just thought, we've just been let down. And as a humble servant of the Government of Tuvalu, I have to make a strong plea to you that we consider this matter properly. We wanted a real deal that would deliver global emissions reductions. And here we were, you know, basically, you know, looked like we were going to be presented with a sort of a very, you know, minor deal. And and, uh, it was hugely distressing. I woke this morning and I was crying. And that's not easy for a grown man to admit. I really felt disappointed. The fate of my country rests in your hands. Thank you. At the start of the second week, the chair of the COP, Connie Hedegaard, lays out the dire situation. I said to the surprise of some, I said, we're standing on the brink sort of uh, of failure or success. And there were people who were deeply surprised. No, why is she mentioning this could be something not, not a success? I mean, we are now making the historical deal and all these things. So definitely, I had this feeling that this could go either way. Well, I think the expectations for Copenhagen were always perhaps impossibly high. Penny Wong was Australia's climate change minister. She worked closely with Kevin Rudd to do some groundwork with other nations in the lead-up to the COP. My partner Sophie is very understanding when it comes to work and very rarely bothers me. I do remember one time being in Copenhagen and getting this text from her that just said, are you still alive? (laughs) Because I actually hadn't called her for three days and I would usually call her at least, you know, make sure I call her every day, walking out of the negotiation and just ringing her to say, look, I'm really sorry. I've just been in 
meetings 24 hours and I kept losing track of days and times and what time it was in Australia. A few days later, Kevin Rudd arrives. And then I knew when I landed and went straight to see Rasmussen, the uh, Danish prime minister, the Chinese and the Indians had organised a small group of carbon-intense countries to become blocking agents. The next thing I remember clearly was um, we had the uh, banquet at the um, Danish royal palace. I think I was sitting next to uh, Prince Fred uh, and Princess Mary, our Australian princess, that's right. And uh, she was saying, what's happening? I said, oh, I don't like the feel of this. <laughs> I said, there's, there's a few heads of government avoiding my glaze. <laughs> and that was when the Dane, uh, Rasmussen, with my full support, said, we're going to get together. The Danish Prime Minister suggests that 20 of the world's largest emitters, plus some developing countries, meet separately to the main conference. Just before we left the Danish Royal Palace, uh, all the other heads of government were trying to cajole uh, Wen Jiabao into coming, the Chinese Premier. And then uh, I think Gordon Brown came up to me and said, Gordon is Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Chinese aren't going to come. And, and we've all agreed you're going to persuade him. <laughs> I said, that's great. Well, you speak Chinese, we don't. So I, I wander over to President Wen, who I could see at this stage was getting a bit tetchy because a lot of people have obviously been into him at his table. He was sitting at the Queen of Denmark's table. And I said to him in Chinese, Premier Wen, we're all off to a meeting now to just work on a draft document. And he said, no one's told me about that. Uh, and I said, oh, I think your officials would be aware. They haven't told me about that. And then I said, well, President United States going, the rest of us going, just see what can be done. And he said, but this is a breach of protocol. It's not on our agenda. Uh, and I said, well, guess what, uh, Premier? It's not on any of our agendas because that's how these conferences work. <laughs> and, uh, we try and use the opportunity to work out agreement among us. And then he became quite angry that I was, as it were, slowly pinning him down. And uh, the tensions within the Chinese delegation were actually razor sharp between those who wanted to do something and those who didn't. Rudd and the other leaders go to what was known as the Green Room. We started literally at about 10pm at night. This is where they would spend the next day and a half. And this was a room which, uh, in the great traditions of Scandinavian minimalism, um, was not big enough to swing a cat. You know, it was, uh, it was just tiny <laughs> and, and airless and with what I describe as Danish minimalist furniture, like no comfy couches there. It was, it was like hard wooden seats. The intensity was huge, to be honest. Um, I've rarely been in a meeting like it. At about 2am, Rudd leaves to grab some sleep. Wong keeps going. Not only had I not slept that night through the night with the leaders' meeting, I hadn't slept, I think, for the last two nights before that. Other than I remember I had I think an hour or two, and I just slept on the kitchen floor of the, you know, our little delegation unit. And by 6am, Rudy's back in the room. It was pretty sharp. It was pretty tense. We were making no progress. We were working frantically with Washington at the time to make sure that Obama would come. And I put in a personal plea to him to be there. Barack Obama arrives. Rudd was hoping this would put pressure on China and India. And I thought, thank God, <laughs> we can get somewhere. Obviously, the Danes are very stressed. 
Penny Wong finds herself among the world's most powerful people. Opposite us was President Obama and Hillary Clinton. Around the room was President Zuma, um, Gordon Brown, Angela Merkel and many others. Like it was a room that I would never have thought in my life I might sit in. And I remember thinking to myself, this room could do anything. Like the amount of economic and political and strategic power that was in that room, you know, that if they had decided, there was very little that those leaders could not have done. I do remember a moment when President Obama leaned forward and he said to He Afe, who was the Chinese negotiator, and to the Brazilians and the Russians, and he said, I something like I'm prepared to invest an enormous amount of political capital in delivering this reform or taking action. But I have to be met. Now, they may not be exactly the words, but what he was saying is, I am prepared to step up, but I need you to meet me. Then he disappeared uh, with Hillary to then work with Merkel, Brown, Singh, the Prime Minister of India, and Wunjabal to see what could be pulled off. And that would seem to go on for an eternity. Work continues in the green room. Then... The Danish Prime Minister, Lars Rasmussen, leaves. And we do not have a chair of this meeting. Like, there's no chair. Now, I think he had to go into the main floor of the conference room to do something, but the Danes were so stretched, they did not have someone to keep the meeting going. I could see the look in the eyes of the Indians and the Chinese who were saying procedurally, we can fold this meeting because there's no one convening it. I then unilaterally said, my good friend, the uh, Prime Minister of Denmark, has asked me to chair the meeting in his absence. He'd done no such thing. (laughs) It was just pure Australian chutzpah. (laughs) And so uh, we kept it running uh, for the next uh, couple of hours and then took the, uh, the text and I said, let's work through each of the unresolved matters in this draft Copenhagen Accord. That's where we spent our 36 hours. But it was at this point Australia and nearly all the other countries in Copenhagen are left behind. The key negotiations took place in a chaotic meeting forced by Obama between the US, China, India, Brazil and South Africa. So, Lenore, Adam, despite Wong and Rudd being awake for days on end, trying to get an agreement in place, in the end... The fate of Copenhagen was not in their hands. What actually happens? There was this remarkable situation at the end, which Obama talked about in his autobiography. One of the things that's often forgotten is how little time he actually spent in Copenhagen. It was there less than a day, I think. And he went from the meeting that Kevin Rudd is describing, this leader's meeting, when he left, he went for a series of meetings and ultimately what became the Copenhagen Accord was basically what Obama presented when Jabao, the Premier of China, and the leaders of India, South Africa and Brazil with, after hunting them out through this conference centre, Chinese officials, according to Obama, had told US officials that Wen was on the way to the airport and then they discovered they were in a very small room somewhere high up in this convention centre and he talks about telling Hillary Clinton, you know, how do you feel about crash it was the last time you crashed a party and they go and walk in and sit down and do a deal that tries to paper over this massive divide and it was a very very thin deal and it was happening in this room with basically between these five leaders and principally between the US and China while 
everyone else in this chaotic mess, including the leaders of more than 100 other countries and including Kevin Rudd, really had no idea what was going on at that stage. It's, it's an extraordinary set of events. Lenore, why did it all get so hard? I do think underneath Copenhagen was the, the crunch point for the principle of developed nations going first in emission reductions because they'd largely caused the global heating problem and developing countries having longer to change their economies. The demand from China was quite extreme in that regard. China went into this meeting and with the support of the G77, the developing countries, that basically not only would that principle apply, but even when it was only being asked to do what it had already volunteered that it would do, it would not agree to any independent verification of its emissions reduction. And this became this real sticking point where I think China wasn't ready to concede that point. It very sort of skillfully held up, bogged down that first week and a half of discussions. And then when the leaders got there and when President Obama finally jetted in, it really was China making sure that no agreement of any import was reached. And even if you, as I do, think there's a lot of legitimacy in the rationale that developed countries go first, that was the sticking point that really sunk Copenhagen in my view. After Obama's hunt through the corridors of the COP, there is an agreement of sorts, but it was weak. It did acknowledge there was a scientific case for keeping warming to two degrees, but the final wording had no serious commitments to cut emissions at all. Two degrees Celsius was unacceptable to us. For a country like Tuvalu, which Ian Fry was representing, it was nowhere near good enough. We knew the science already had said that if we reach two degrees increase, Tuvalu's future was extremely threatened. So it was a poor deal. Distinguished delegates are now declare open the resumed 12th session of the CMP. So we went into the plenary hall and, and the Prime Minister of Denmark introduced the subject of the Copenhagen Accord. I asked delegates to reflect on these proposals. And I knew as soon as he started to speak, he was going to gavel it through. He was just going to say, here we have the Copenhagen Accord, everybody agree. And I declared this meeting at, of the CMP to be suspended. And, and was going to gavel it. So I, I had to jump in. I had to press the button. Sorry, sorry. Everybody, I know I, I made this banging, but um, perhaps it's because it's too late and I'm a bit tired. I wasn't um, really aware that uh, someone asked for the point of order. So, um, to please. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. President. You know, I spoke up and said this was a poor deal. I have to say on the outset that a cursory review suggests that it has major problems. Can I suggest, in biblical terms, it looks like we're being offered 30 pieces of silver to betray our people and our future. Because that was all we were being given. Mr. President, our future is not for sale. I regret to inform you. Other developing countries join in. I will now move on to Venezuela, please. Calling out the big polluters. Gracias, señor presidente. 
Venezuela's climate envoy Claudia Solano slams her hand down on the bench so hard she cuts it. There's blood. Mr. President, do you think a sovereign country should have to make its hand bleed in order to raise the right to speak? Because you simply do not want to hear what is happening? This is the blood of the developing world, she says. This hand which is bleeding wants to speak and it has as much right as any of these which you call representative group of leaders. Thank you very much. Thank you. I would now like to give the floor to Bolivia, please, Bolivia. The chair didn't know what to do. People were scrambling around to try and see how they could salvage this outcome. Coming up next, the fall of Copenhagen and Kevin Rudd. I will now read the two decisions that we are placing before this conference. They are in English, so I will read them in English. Decision 1 slash CMP.5. The conference of the parties serving as the meeting of the parties to the Kyoto Protocol at its fifth session agrees to suspend the fifth session of the conference of the parties serving as the meeting of the parties to the Kyoto Protocol. In a final failure, the Copenhagen Accord wasn't adopted. It was noted. Having made progress and considering all issues, noting that the mandate of the Valley Action Plan is to reach an agreed outcome and adopt decision at its 15th session. Further noting... That's UN speak for saying we acknowledge it exists, but nobody has to do anything about it. If the Secretariat could please officially receive this submission, I would be most grateful. Thank you very much, Mr. President. Thank you. One key word has been echoing around this chamber today, failure. Environmental activists called the non-binding agreement a crime. As it stands, this is a deal that leaves no one satisfied. The betrayal of the poor, the betrayal of vulnerable countries, the betrayal of small island states, and it's a betrayal of the future of all children and our grandchildren. And the question on many people's lips, for so little achieved, was it really worth it? When it all came out and the accord didn't have any sorts of obligations, it seemed like a dreadful ending. That's Howard Bamsey. Remember him? He was the senior diplomat in Bali who had been cheered when Australia said it would ratify the Kyoto Protocol. Now, two years on, he was leaving Copenhagen broken. I was just completely exhausted and I went back to my room in the hotel. I had to leave that evening to go to London. I remember having a shower and just taking all my clothes that I'd worn for two or three days or whatever it was by this stage and just chucking them in the bin. It was very much put all this behind me. It was a sad time. We'd invested so much in this. You know, we I can't think of, a, of an adequate description of how I felt and I think the others felt. From inside the United Nations, Andrew Hyam felt just as defeated. 
Oh, look, I was really sad and I was embarrassed, actually. I had to come home to my family and try to explain what they'd seen in the news and why things had gone so badly. And um, I really had to have a serious think about, you know, what I was doing. I'd left uh, Australia to try and work on this problem and it backfired on me, you know, like I'd, I'd come home with nothing. There are times in politics where you feel distressed or upset. Few express the devastation of Copenhagen as well as Penny Wong. You lose, your party loses, you make a mistake, your policy doesn't land. Well, you know, all the things that where you do a bad interview, I say something I shouldn't say. <laughs> but I think this, this, there has never been anything in politics that I have felt so deeply as that, as I did in that room, because it felt that we were falling short of what all of those next generations would have expected. We were falling short of the leadership. So I think I felt a a great despair. But I also knew that the likelihood would be Copenhagen would be used to stop us being able to take the action we wanted to take on climate. I feared that we were going to see domestic political conflict within politics, but also that the community's support for what we were trying to do was going to be eroded by the scare campaign. I didn't anticipate we would be in 2021 and still not have resolved it. Lenore and Adam, you were both in Copenhagen. What was your experience of it? I very much understand what Penny Wong is saying there. I also found the outcome from Copenhagen quite disturbing. I found that despite having spent decades doing political reporting, which I thought had made me quite cynical or removed, that I really did have this confidence that if the most powerful leaders in the world got into a room to tackle the most profound problem facing humanity, that they'd figure something out, um, maybe not something perfect, but something. And when they didn't, it really was quite discombobulating. I remember I almost didn't get home for Christmas because there was this huge snowstorm that cancelled all the flights But I also had this sort of visceral anxiety because it seemed disastrous on a global scale. And as Penny Wong said, it was pretty clear that Australian politics was going to veer in a direction that was profoundly unhelpful for anybody who thought we should be doing something about global heating. I do recall coming home and feeling absolutely exhausted in a way I never have, and hearing some people trying to put a half positive spin on what had come out of that conference and really not being able to accept for a long time that that was justifiable in any way, because the whole thing had been so poorly run and the end result so botched. It was it felt like a complete disaster for a long while, I think. And it had really serious ramifications for Australian politics and Australia's inaction over the more than decade since on climate change. 
Okay, well now to tonight's guest, the new leader of the Liberal Party, Tony Abbott. He's taken on the job with the opposition travelling poorly in the polls and a big task ahead, reuniting the party. At this point, the politics back home is really bitter. We might be talking about all sorts of things. The fact is, we are in the world as it is now, and the only person who wants to save the world uh, on his own is Kevin Rudd. Rudd returned to Australia to face the new opposition leader, Tony Abbott. The only person who wants to move in advance of all the other countries is Kevin Rudd. And moving in advance of all the other countries will damage our economy without helping the environment. Abbott promised to oppose Rudd and fight climate action every step of the way. Certainly there is a lot that you can do that does not involve Kevin Rudd's giant new tax on everything okay, and right. Kevin Rudd's money go round. This started with blocking Rudd's emissions trading scheme. Today, within 24 hours, your first goal will be realised. It looks as though the Senate, with your senators on board there, will vote down the Rudd bill. That's my expectation. But no one was really predicting how successful Tony Abbott's weaponisation of the issue would be. People were not confident about how effective he would be as opposition leader. The way that the debate panned out, the political success he would have in ditching any sort of serious attempt at policymaking and just weaponising it as a political issue. Okay, obviously Rudd was under a lot of pressure from Abbott, but is there anything he could have done differently? I mean, he had the option after Copenhagen to call a double dissolution election. He needed to make that decision quite quickly. He didn't. He was urged to do that by a number of his advisers, and the emissions training scheme didn't pass the parliament. And so he was left stranded. Uh, he then took that quite fateful decision to shelve the emissions trading scheme and the rest is history. Tonight there is political history in the making. Julia Gillard will challenge Kevin Rudd to become the first female Prime Minister of Australia. This was kind of the beginning of the end for the Labor government. You know, it was a sequence of events, but this was one of the big predetermining events that led to the end of his Prime Ministership the first time round. Just two and a half years ago, Kevin Rudd was the most popular Prime Minister Australia had ever had. But tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, in a specially convened caucus meeting, he will face his judgment day. Some are saying it'll be his execution. Rudd's support slips away. In 2010, he resigned and Julia Gillard became Prime Minister. The barrage from Tony Abbott continued. We all know that the Rudd-Gillard government has been a monumental disaster. A disaster unparalleled in Australian history. His opposition to the Gillard government's climate policies was relentless. The whole argument for a carbon tax is lie after lie after lie. Specifically, his opposition to a carbon pricing scheme which he called a tax. We will fight this tax every second of every minute, of every day, of every week, of every month. In 2013, Rudd again became Prime Minister. I recognise his strengths. I also recognise, however, that Mr Abbott is a man steeped in the power of negative politics. But when faced with Abbott in the federal election that year, he loses. 
Victory was predicted, and when it came, it was emphatic. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. So even though the conference fell apart, Rudd failed on his climate ambitions, there is something else, Adam, that comes out of this time. Some of the work that was done in the lead-up to and during Copenhagen, especially by Australia, sort of changed how the world would try and get a new deal on climate. I think for this moment in which Australia really was striving really hard to take a leadership role on the global stage to try to help get a deal, one of the things... Um, worth remembering. And that was stressed to us in a lot of the interviews we've done by not just people within Australian government at the time, but also some on the outside, that idea of countries putting forward what they were prepared to do into some sort of international schedule that then would be monitored and measured and then expectation that countries would increase their commitments over time was at least in part an Australian suggestion and something that Australian governments were fighting for. And that happened under Kevin Rudd and Penny Wong and extended under Greg Combe, Wong's successor. And Australia is seen as having played a role in setting up that idea of what became known as nationally determined contributions, countries deciding what they were prepared to commit to as the only way that you were going to get the global community to come back together. And I think it's sometimes ignored that amid the understandable criticism that Australia gets for what it's done on climate, that it did play a positive role there, that you know a seed was planted then that flowered over time. I don't think Paris would have happened if Copenhagen hadn't happened. It fell well short of what we wanted. But the foundations of Paris were laid. Next, on Australia versus the climate, we travel to Paris. When we just looked at each other when we saw the outcome, and we just went, oh my God. <laughs> but not long after, Australia reverts to type. It was almost like the Australian beast kind of re-emerged back from those Kyoto days in a really aggressive way. Morrison looked at me with steely eyes and says, do you want me to not give you the 150 million we've promised? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying? The question now is where the hell is Australia? What on earth is Australia up to? I'm your host, Graham Redfern. Australia versus the climate was reported and produced by me and Adam Morton. The series producer is Jake Morecambe. Miles Herbert and Joe Koning did production and Joe also did the sound design. Mixing by Camilla Hannan. Beck Pridham and Thomas Phillips assisted with production. Executive producers are Adam Morton, Miles Martignoni and Gabrielle Jackson. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.